I want to read to you from Exodus, and I'm going to just set a tiny bit of context before we dig in here. Um, if you don't know the story of Israel, it began with one man, the man Abraham. God called him, set him apart to be the father of the Hebrew people, who at these days we call the Jews. And uh, 400 years after Abraham, they found themselves in slavery in Egypt. So they were a kind of a people group living in another state, uh, in the Egyptian state at the time of the pharaohs. And they were slaves. They were, they were laboring and working for the pharaoh and also experiencing no liberty, no freedom. And God decides, now is the time to rescue my people. And so begins the story of the Exodus, which means a leaving, a going out, where the people of Israel, the Israelites, are called out of Egypt and into a journey which would eventually take them to the promised land, Canaan, Israel, Palestine, whichever name you want to give it, that that stretch of land which is by the Mediterranean Sea, which uh, they have had a constant presence in uh, from then till this day. And... uh, Along that journey, as God calls them out by a miraculous sequence of events, a few days into the journey, they begin a new relationship with God, what the Bible describes as a covenant relationship, which is the closest thing that we understand a covenant today is the covenant of marriage, which I'll be referencing later to try and help you understand what's going on. But as part of that covenant relationship, God calls the people to obey his law, to be a people who do his will follow his instructions, live under his guidance, and so live lives that please him. And the beginning of that is when God brings Moses up the Mount Sinai, which is on the picture behind you. So somewhere in the vicinity of that image is where Moses hears from God the law that is to guide the people of Israel for uh, many, many centuries from then on. And And here's just a little snapshot of what's going on on that occasion. People of Israel are camping at the base of the mountain. They're not allowed up. And Moses climbs up alone to begin with. I'll just read you Exodus 19 verse 16. It says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. So there are these kind of strange and miraculous events which are making the people aware of the fear of God. This is then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So begins God's communication with Moses about the law. And as it kicks off, it starts, let's just jump to chapter 20. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the beginning of the Ten Commandments, which is the kind of essence of the law that God gave to Israel. The Ten Commandments are incredibly important in history and incredibly important, most of all, for God's people. I know just a couple of weeks, a few weeks ago, Jenny wrote an article for, um, Jenny Pollock wrote an article for our Salt online um, magazine thing. Um, Never know how to describe it. (laughs) Um, For Salt. Uh, In which she, she talked about the culture's 
understanding of and reaction to the Ten Commandments today, when, when, when modern-day Brits are polled on their views of the Ten Commandments, basically what you get is a, a kind of throwing out of some of them, particularly the first four, which mainly revolve around God and worship, what it means to know God, love God, serve God, and, and worship God. And those ones, people today, modern 21st century people generally think are no longer of any relevance. But then, of course, the, the remaining six, which have more to do with our relationships with each other, people see that, well, there's still some resonance. Um, they said something like 93% said that it's still applicable today that you shall not murder, which makes you think that in a room like this, there's a certain percentage of people who think it is okay to murder. <laughs> but in any case, most people regard these as somewhat archaic, somewhat bizarre, somewhat irrelevant to today's living. And in fact, even Christians often think that. So why on earth would we begin a new series in the Ten Commandments? Why would we come back to this? And part of the answer is that you can't really uh, overestimate how important these, these words are, these laws are, in the scope of biblical faith. Uh, I'll give you a few reasons. For one thing, they were the first written part of the Bible. So here we have a book of many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of words, and it begins with hundreds of thousands, I'm sure. But it begins with um, God writing on stone the Ten Commandments. They're important for that reason. They're the seed of what would become the Bible. They're important because, as it tells us, they were written by the very finger of God that they were written on stone tablets to sort of symbolize their permanency at the center of the community's heart. They were also stored in what was called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, some of you, especially if you're not a churchgoer, may have no idea what we're talking about. Have you ever seen the Indiana Jones movies? It's the thing that Indiana was looking for, which has this extraordinary power. Um, no one knows where it is, if it still exists anywhere. But the Ark of the Covenant was at the center of Israel's worship. And inside it, they placed a few special objects. And among them were these two stone tablets, which stated the Ten Commandments. And of course, as you rush into the New Testament, what you discover is that all of the commandments are referenced in some way in relation to the Christian life. Some of you, though, if you know your, your theology at all, you'll think, well... Maybe we don't need to look at these because the law, as it was given to Israel, no longer is binding on the Christian, which is true in a sense. Paul tells us in the New Testament that we as Christians are dead to the law. It, don't, it no longer binds us in the way that it bound Israel. It's no longer at the center of our covenant relationship with God. We have a new way of relating to God by grace. And I absolutely accept that. And this is what we preach about and what we affirm consistently here. But what you have to understand is that when Jesus preaches a new way of living in the kingdom, and when the, the apostles start to preach it and live out this new Christian life, they do not diminish the, the call to holiness that you find in the Old Testament law. What they do rather is they, they turn up the dial. The way Jesus handles these laws is rather to intensify the meaning of each of the laws for your life. So, for example, you take the one for murder. Jesus says, in his Sermon on the Mount, he says it's not enough just that you don't commit murder. He says even if you're angry with your brother, and I think he means a certain kind of anger, then you have committed murder in your heart. And the God who sees all can see the sin in your heart even if you have not committed any wrong. So the one thing we can't do is say that in God's kingdom, now that we're Christians, his call to holiness is somehow that he's lowered the bar. 
It's the very opposite. Jesus intensifies what it means to live, for the co- the, live a holy life for the glory of God. And that is hugely provocative for us. To be a Christian is not to be under the law. But the way Michael Eaton, one of my favorite preachers, he passed away last year, he put it, is that as a Christian, you, you begin to fulfill it by accident. It's not that your whole life is obsessed with fulfilling the law, but rather as you're obsessed with Jesus and wanting to grow in holiness, you accidentally fulfill the law by the power of the Holy Spirit who now lives in all believers. That's what the New Testament says about you if you're a Christian, that God's power has come to live in you and change you. And these are things we've got to think about deeply in the coming weeks as we unfold these commandments. But nevertheless, I still think they have a special place and a special power for us today. For one thing, they teach us what love looks like, for example. You and I say, well, the summary of the law is to love God and to love our neighbors. But what does love mean in day-to-day practice? There's lots of ways that you can twist God's will by saying, oh, this is the loving thing to do. You can say, it's loving for me to sleep with my girlfriend. And of course, the Bible says, no, sex belongs within marriage. So you can't justify your actions by claiming that what you're doing is the most loving thing. Does that make sense? The only way we can really put content into the commands of what it means to love God and love our neighbor is to begin to understand the heart of God as it's revealed in his own commandments in the Old Testament. It fills out the picture of us of what the godly life looks like. This is why it has a special resonance for us as Christians. There's another reason as well, though. As Christians, you know that our, our walk with God goes up and down in day-to-day life, doesn't it? And sometimes you go through seasons where you are aware that you are turning your back on God and walking away from Him. Maybe you feel a certain coldness to God. And sometimes God speaks to you through His laws, that they come to you in a way that is fresh and you hear them and you suddenly come into what we call conviction of sin, where you suddenly feel a fresh pang of awareness of God's holiness and your, the wrongness of what it is to walk away from him. And the law is doing that work in you, or really the Holy Spirit is doing that work in you through his law. They can awaken us again to what it means to live for God. And I trust that as we open these commandments up in the coming weeks, that is exactly what he's going to be doing in every one of us to some extent. He'll be doing that in you today. I have no doubt. But probably the most important reason you can look at the laws is because they deepen your love for Jesus. The righteous man, the one who fulfilled them, as we'll think about later this morning. So I want to come to this first commandment where God says, You shall have no other gods before me. At first glance, Maybe you think it sounds a little bit irrelevant to 21st century Londoners. Because it's not as though you're going around with a temptation to bow down to idols made of wood and stone and clay, is it? Those things generally belong to other places and other eras. And are quite rare to come across that kind of thing in our secular society. So you may think, well, what, this doesn't really resonate with me. I have no other gods before me. Because I don't really tempted to do that in the first place. I'm not bowing down to idols. I'm not kind of worshipping other gods in that sense. But what you've got to realize, and we're going to explore and open up what this means, is that this commandment is the foundation to a godly life. If you put it negatively, every time you sin, you've broken this commandment. 
And every time, when you live a righteous life, what you're doing is fully embodying what it means to worship no one but God alone. This is the absolute foundation of godly living. And I hope you'll begin to see that as we just unpack it this morning. And so what I'm just trying to say to you, friends, is I don't think you can exaggerate how important this this law is for the Christian life. There's no way you can overstate how vital and current and important it is. So here's how I want to begin. Firstly, we need to begin with thinking about this from a negative perspective. No other gods, he says. What does that mean? No other gods. What is he saying when he rules out something out of your life? He says, you shall have no other gods before me. We need to think about this negatively to begin with, to understand it. The straightforward, bare reading of it is that this is the strongest kind of claim that God makes for exclusive worship. He says, I'm the only true God and you shall worship no one but me. He demands loyalty. He demands faithfulness. He demands that you reject all other options and choose him alone. Now, immediately, we are crashing into the spirit of the age that we live in, where we suddenly become aware in the global village that we live in of the massive diversity of religions and religious beliefs. Many of you in this room have represent or have come from other religions. Your friends at university or at work, many of them are from other faiths. So how can the God of the Bible stand there and say, you shall worship no one but me? And I think this is one of the things that most crashes against the, the culture that we live in. People say this is fanatical. This is at the root of most of the division that we see in the world today, this fanatical mindset that there's only one way. They say it's too exclusive. It's intolerant. They say it's arrogant. Isn't it the essence of pride to say my way is the true way, that this is the only way to truth? And that's the first way that this this hits us. If we've begun to to kind of sit and marinate in in the secular culture that we live in, we think this is not right. How can a God stand there and say it's the only way? How can a religion claim to be the only true way? There's lots of ways, friends, that we could answer that. If we were going to take a kind of more intellectual route, we could, could offer proofs for the truth of who this God is over against other religions. You could do an intellectual defense of the faith. You could, you could show that everybody, even the most liberal, tolerant people, actually have exclusive beliefs, even if they don't realize it. Everyone says that there's a certain things which they say are, are immovable in their, in their belief system. You could demonstrate that Saying that all religions are equally true is a complete nonsense because they are so contradictory at every level. How many gods are there? You ask the Hindus, there are millions. You ask the Buddhists, there's none. You ask the Christians, the Muslims, and the Jews. You say there's one god. You know, there's contradictions at every level of religious belief. And therefore, how can people with sane, serious faces say that all religions are the same? It's impossible, isn't it? So we could do all that stuff, and I, but I actually don't think today's the time or the place for that. Because when you think about the context of when God says this to Israel, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, this isn't an academic argument for the reality of God over against other other gods. It's an experiential argument. 
God was appealing to the fact that these people had known slavery and now they were free. And that no matter what anyone else has to say about their religious beliefs, they knew that it was God who delivered them. This resonates with us as Christians because even if you lay aside all the intellectual reasons and arguments and that we put, we put forward to, to make a case for the faith that we believe, at the heart of it, we just know that God has saved us. That he's done an extraordinary work in our lives. Now, friends, I want you to understand this is absolutely vital for grasping what, the heart behind this command. From the outside in, maybe you're, you're sat here, you're not a Christian. And it does sound to you harsh. You shall have no other gods before me. It sounds demanding. Maybe it sounds from the outside a little bit despotic, like a paranoid dictator trying to curtail freedoms. And it may sound like that to you from the outside looking in and thinking, this just sounds harsh and cold and dictatorial. But from the inside, you've got to realize that this is way more like a wedding vow than like a law. The Bible pictures us as being like like a woman who's been abused, sexually abused, and made unclean, and sort of feels like she's been tossed aside. That image is used in the Bible of, of the people of God. When God comes along and finds her, this is the experience of Christians. That this is, you've experienced this on a personal level, not just in a corporate way, but you've experienced this for yourself. That God found you when you were full of shame. He found you when you felt dirty. He found you when you felt guilty. He found you when you, you were so aware that there was stuff in your life you could not fix. And in his kindness, he finds you like the victim of sex trafficking or, or something like this. And he... he he frees you to begin with. You're, you're a slave to your own sin. But he frees you from it. And then he doesn't just liberate you, but then he, he gives you a, new clothes. He, he allows you to stand there feeling clean for the first time because you've experienced the forgiveness that God gives. And suddenly the conscience that was badgering you from your whole life is now clear for the very first time. Not because you've dulled it by drinking or by taking drugs. Not because you've run away from it by entertainment and the pursuit of pleasure. But because you can stand there before God sober and in your right mind and say, I know I am forgiven. And so he takes you from a place of absolute indignity and shame, reclothes you and allows you to stand in his presence feeling that you are clean for the first time and that you can hold your head high. Not because you're a good person but because he has washed you. And the Bible says that this is what God's done for his people. It's as though we were a bride, taken from a place of shame and brought into, his, into a marriage union with the living God. Now you think about those of you who are married and all of you have been to weddings. If they mean anything at all, if a wedding means anything at all, the one thing you've got to recognize is that it means exclusive loyalty. That the kind of vows that couples make towards one another on that wedding day are not laws, are they? They don't have the feeling of laws. You know, I, that I promise to, to love you till death do us part. Does it sound like a law? No, it's, it's a commitment that belongs within a covenant. 
Because you're saying, I belong to you and you belong to me. And because we now belong together, nothing should separate that love that we have for each other. So when God rescues us from sin, brings us into relationship with himself, and then says, you shall have no other gods before me, what he's saying is, I've married you. My love for you has been made clear by the fact that I've accepted you and cleaned you. How, how could you turn to another lover? Now, as the Bible story progresses, Israel hears the law, but the one thing that keeps leading them astray is that they turn to other lovers. And God calls it, in many places in the Scriptures, He calls this a kind of spiritual adultery. It's not a physical thing, it's a spiritual thing. That as God's people, whenever they disobeyed this command and started running after the other gods of the other nations, God says that you are whoring after them. It's like adultery. This is why the law says, you shall have no other gods before me. And John Calvin was commenting on this. He said it's rather like somebody bringing in their lover into the family home in front of the husband. That barefaced, shameless way that sometimes we worship other things instead of the living God. No other gods before me. You shan't bring someone else into this relationship in front of my face. Then we need to ask, well then, if that's the force of it, what is spiritual adultery? What does it look like in your life or in my life? I think the marriage analogy helps us the most here. What is marital adultery? It's looking for another person to fulfill what only your spouse should fulfill, isn't it? There are certain things, certain needs and desires, some emotional, some physical, that only your spouse is called to fulfill in marriage. And when another person starts to be the fulfillment to those things, that's when you've begun an adulterous relationship. And if that's true of marriage, that adultery is this looking to other people to fulfill certain needs in your life, it's true also in your walk with God. This is why the Bible... You, speaks about this kind of idolatry, this spiritual adultery is loving something more than God. Often refers to these idols as lovers. It's trusting something more than God. It's needing something in your life more than you feel you need God. It's seeking joy from something in your life more than you seek joy from the living God. It's seeking affirmation and identity from things in your life that, when you should seek it from God. Is fearing losing something in your life more than you fear losing your relationship with God. Can you see how there are endless ways we can understand what spiritual adultery is, what it means to be an idolater? It's not as simple as getting on your knees before a clay image. It begins much deeper. It begins in your very heart. In Psalm 44, it says this, If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, Would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. In other words, it's not just when your life is so obviously enslaved to things besides God that you then become an idolater. God 
looks right into your, the very motives and intentions of your heart and he sees the secrets of your heart and he knows when our hearts are drawn astray from a, a pure and sincere love and devotion to him. The Bible use, talks about many day-to-day things as being potential idols in your life. I think the most, the one that's spoken of most frequently and with most sort of Force is, is money because of its extraordinary power it has over us. So you have to ask yourself questions like this. Do you, do you, in a sense, obey the call of money? Do you feel that you need money more than you're aware of your need of God? Does that control some of your decision-making in day-to-day life more than God does? Do you fear losing it? You're more anxious about your, your bank account than you are about your, your walk with the Lord. Does money guide you in that sense? The Bible has many sort of almost odd references like this about different kinds of idols. Here's another one. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul describes how we can be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Pleasure and entertainment can become an idol in your life. He says, isn't that a strange thought? Because you think, yeah, we, we're meant to enjoy the good things that God's given us. But when do those good things become like spiritual lovers to us, taking the place of a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Perhaps when those things occupy all of your waking hours, your free time at least. Perhaps when the thought of how to spend your money is most controlled by how to seek entertainment and pleasure rather than sowing into the kingdom of God, which is how Jesus taught us to use our money primarily. Perhaps when you choose entertainment over worship. And don't we all? In Philippians 3, another one is that Paul talks about food being a, an idol. He says, their God is their belly. Now these days, it's less likely that your, your belly God will be expressed through expansion, but rather through contraction and the exhibition of a six-pack, isn't it? But either way, we can become equally obsessed with food, can't we? I'm nicely in the middle, neither too fat nor too thin. <laughs> There's definitely no six-packs going on here. But food can become an idol. It can control your thoughts. It can, you know, thinking about what you do eat or what you don't eat. It can control your budget. Some of you are most concerned to earn money to put nice things in your mouth. It sounds odd, doesn't it, when we state it like that? But actually it's true for many of us, especially in a a kind of city like this where you can eat something new every single night of the week. It can control your mood. You know, whether you're happy or sad has a lot to do with how good the dinner is you had. That sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But can you see how so many of the things that we interact with on a day-to-day life can have more effect on our, on our thoughts, our time, and our, on, our, on our emotions than God does? At which point any one of those things has become an idol in your life and you are engaged in spiritual adultery. Anything. 
And so this is where it begins with a negative. He says, I want you to have no other gods before me. And that's one way we can think about this. But friends, we can't just leave it at the negative. We also need to turn this around and think about what does this mean to us positively? Because you don't only read these commandments, the Ten Commandments, through the negative lens, where they're stated negatively. Think about the marriage analogy again. If a husband and wife are faithful to each other for 50 years, does that mean that they have a good relationship? If they never engage in an illicit relationship with someone outside the marriage, does it mean that their marriage is good and healthy? And the obvious answer is no, because all of us know people, or have experienced even for ourselves, if you've been married, moments where you're faithful to each other, but your marriage is not full of joy and delight. Now, if that's true of marriage, it's also true of your walk with God. You could be, in one sense, innocent of being an idolater. There's no other gods before him. But equally, your heart is not aligned with love for him. And the force of this, the kind of essence of the command like this, you should have no other gods before me, is not just to be thought of in the negative, the things I need to put out of my life. But it has to also be understood in the positive. What does God mean by this? He means that you are called not just to reject everything else, but to love him with your entire being. And that to be a Christian is to shoot for nothing less than that. This is why Jesus says that to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the fulfillment of the, of the law. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when we take this command, you have no other gods before me, and push it through that filter, what it means to love God with all I am, I think you're beginning to get closer to what is the heart and the principle and the intention behind this command. So we've got to open up the positive meaning of this. What does it look like to love God in that way? Let's think about it in terms of your faculties, heart and soul, mind, and then will. What does it mean to love God with all of your heart and soul, the inner person, which is what you're called to? Do you love God? It means, friends, that you're not satisfied with just an intellectual faith. It is important that you understand your faith. But how many of us know that you can understand it up here, but your heart remains cold and unmoved? It means you're not satisfied either with just a choosing, a volitional faith, a faith that just belongs in the will, that I just choose to obey God in a stoic way. I just keep walking forward. And when Jesus said, you're called to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. He meant the innermost parts of your being. Your emotions, your desires, the things that move you on the inside. This is why when some of the 17th century guys, the Puritans, were trying to grapple with what this meant. They said that, they put it in this way, they said that we've got to see that lukewarmness and deadness in the things of God are a way of disobeying this command. That if your heart has grown cold to God, if you're dead to spiritual things, you can't worship. You don't want to pray. You don't want to know God. You don't want to understand him through his word. Don't you realize 
But this is when you are, you, you've crashed and fallen short of what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. And friends, this is how we break the commandments. God wants all of you. And it starts from deep inside. He wants your heart. Think about your mind then. What does it mean to love God with all of your mind? You ask yourself the question, am I seeking to know him and to think his thoughts after him? Do you know that inside your cranium, you have the most complex object in the universe? Your brain. Absolutely nothing else in all of creation comes close to the complexity of the mind inside that skull. What did God give it to you for? What are you using it for? It's a shame, isn't it, how so, so much of our time and energy is spent in really the most lazy use of our minds. Web surfing and clicking through social media and then just clicking on to Netflix and just basically deadening our minds until we die. It's a depressing way of looking at it, isn't it? But there's some truth in that, right? When God gave you the most extraordinary thing in the universe inside that skull. And when Jesus said, listen, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, but also with your mind. What does it mean to love God with your mind? You may think, well, I don't have much of a mind. Friend, you have an extraordinary mind. None of you have a useless mind. The Bible shows that true spirituality involves the mind. We were talking about this last week. How Psalm 1 paints the picture of the righteous man as the one who meditates on God's law day and night. He allows his mind to be consumed with the things of God. You have a hunger to know him and understand him. What about Your will. If you want to love God with every faculty, yes, it involves the will, doesn't it? Just raw, deliberate obedience. I think that's what it means to have no other gods before him. Now, I'm provoked by examples of extreme devotion that we see occasionally in life and in history. I think about World War I soldiers who, in extraordinary courage, climbed out of the trenches to face machine guns and gas and barbed wire, because of their passion for liberty and the desire to withhold the enemy. And you think this is, these are models of the most extreme human courage and devotion to a cause. But you see it also in the more mundane things of life. You see athletes who are willing to get up at four in the morning. There was um, a, deca- a decathlon guy, decathlete, back in the 90s, I think, or 80s, um, Daley Thompson, who used to, he talked about how unglamorous it was to get up in, in the morning, in those winter mornings, and hold a shot putt that was freezing to your neck. You think, what motivates a person to give such devotion of will to a singular aim? Everyone has their own reasons to do these things. But I admire that kind of passionate way of living that says, I choose to do this. This is what I am devoted to, and I will follow this with every ounce of energy that I have. 
In the Bible, even in the law of God, there was provision for people who, were, who wanted to, to devote themselves to God over and above ordinary devotion. If you go forward in the law to Numbers chapter 6, there, were these, there was the possibility that you could become a Nazarite, that you could take a vow called the Nazarite vow. It's an interesting one. It meant that you had to, first of all, you had to become teetotal. So you weren't allowed to drink anything that was fermented. So communion was off the menu. You also weren't allowed to shave your hair. You let your hair grow shaggy and long. Men and women could take these, these vows. And so beard and head, all of it went untrimmed. Armpits, the whole lot, everything. And you also weren't allowed any contact with dead bodies. Which occasionally would become a huge inconvenience if, if a family member were dead and you were supposed to be engaged in the funeral or something like this. But the reason why this provision was made was because God recognized, of course, that certain people have in their heart a desire to, to pursue God more wholeheartedly than others. So he says, okay, you can set aside your, your life for a certain period of time to become a Nazarite. You take a vow and then you pursue God in this way. You ask yourself, well, is there a place for that kind of thing in the Christian life? And part of me wants to say no, because I know that you can do all kinds of external obedience and your heart can be far away from God. I know lots of people, I've seen it in my own life where I can do religious stuff, but my heart isn't really alive for the things of God. Jesus encountered this all the time in the Pharisees. They were the most devoted people of his day. They were the equivalent of the Nazarites, but none of them love God in a true way. So I want to say no, but I also want to say yes. Because in a sense, every Christian is called to be more like a Nazarite than a regular Israelite. There's no such thing as moderate Christianity. I know that this is the way we're enculturated and programmed to think about what religious religion should look like in your life. That we're brought up, especially if you've grown up in this country where everything is reasonable, that you, a little bit of religion is okay, it's good, it's admirable, but too much makes you slightly weird and fanatical. And so we have this kind of sif upper lip version of Christianity, which is like, yeah, you can have a bit of faith, but don't be too emotional about it and don't be too devoted because then you're just a freak and a weirdo and we don't want to have anything to do with you. And Jesus went around saying, friends, if you want to be my disciples, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. You need to die to yourself. Now, there's nothing moderate about that, is there? It's not a particularly moderate way of committing to being his followers. Saying, okay, I'm just going to moderately die to you today, Jesus. Just going to be kind of mediocre Christian. There's no such thing. When Jesus said, this is what it means to be my disciple, it's as though he was saying, every one of my followers is a Nazarite. Because you're all called to the most extraordinary level of holiness. You're all called to be totally radical. And doesn't that resonate with your spirit? I want to ask you this question. What effect does all this have on you? As I describe what it means to fulfill this law. I imagine that part of you aspires to it. You think, I long to be more devoted to God. I'd love to be a passionate follower of God. And then there's part of you that is immediately crushed by the weight of this. You think, I've tried. And I can't summon the energy or the will to change. 
How can this law be a delight to us rather than just a burden? And here's my first answer, friends. You've got to remember that there's only one man in history who has fully obeyed this command to have no other gods before the Father. There's only one man in history who's done that. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone, of all people who ever lived, demonstrated what it means to have no other gods. He did it in a negative sense that he didn't bow down to other idols. You remember how Satan tempted him in the wilderness? And he says, he quotes the command that you shall have no other gods. And he says, I won't bow down to you. But also in the positive sense, Jesus' whole heart was given to the Father. He said things like this. He says, my, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. The thing which energizes me in the morning, he meant. The thing which causes me to wake up and want to engage with the Father is I want to do his will. He had a heart that was totally absorbed with the Father's will. His heart and soul, his mind, every faculty was given to God. You remember how even as a little boy, when he was 11 years of age or thereabouts, his parents forgot him when they lost him in Jerusalem and went on their way home to Bethlehem. I can only imagine they were traveling with a large group of people and there were other people looking after the kids and it was all like we take turns and somehow they forgot to bring home their oldest son from the party and as they travel home, they get part way and they realize what on earth has happened to Jesus. And then when they go back to Jerusalem, where do they find him as an 11-year-old boy? They find him discussing the law with the teachers of the law. And, conf- and amazing, even the old men, because of his knowledge of the scriptures as a young boy. And it's not because he was a son of God and God, just like a matrix thing, just downloaded the Bible into his mind. He plugged it in and went, <laughs> knew the Bible. It wasn't that at all. Jesus lived a fully human life, which means that he had to get up, he had to go to his synagogue, he had to open the scrolls, he needed to study the scrolls, he had to discuss it, he had to learn the Bible. And so from beginning to end, we see a, a life that's wholly devoted to the Father. In Gethsemane, shortly before his arrest, what's he doing? He's on his knees before the Father saying, Lord, Please take this cup from me, the cup of drinking the death that I'm about to drink. But he says, not my will, but yours be done. He's laying down his life again, as he did every day of his life. No other gods before you. Your will be done. And I'm grateful that we worship a hero who obeyed this even when we can't. Because when Jesus went to the cross for you, One of the sins that he died for, probably the sin, the sin behind every other sin you do, is a sin of idolatry and spiritual adultery. He died and bled so that you could be forgiven for your mixed heart, your mixed up heart that loves other things besides God. And Jesus said, I'm going to take that sin. I'm going to be nailed to the cross for that sin. But he didn't just leave you there in a state of being forgiven. He then gave you his righteousness. Which means that when God looks at you, he doesn't see a person with conflicted desires. What he sees is somebody who loves you as much as Jesus loved him. Loves him as much as Jesus did. He sees someone wholly devoted. That's what it means to be covered by the blood of Jesus. You get his record instead of your flawed record. And this is why we rejoice in the grace of God. But then he doesn't leave you there even. 
Because the New Testament promises that then God puts a new heart in you and puts his own spirit in you so that by the power of that spirit, you don't remain the person you were enslaved to all kinds of idolatries in your life, whether to money or to success or to sex or to pleasure, all these things. He gradually and sometimes dramatically untangles these things from your heart and releases you from them so that you no longer desire them more than you desire him. Paul puts it like this in Romans 6. He says you become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you become accustomed. Which means that you're, not, you're no longer a person who doesn't want idols just because you've decided not to worship idols. You don't want idols because they look pitiful to you in comparison to what it means to worship the living God. And friend, Jesus is doing that work in your life. So we take extraordinary comfort from the fact that as Christians, yes, we fail. We fail repeatedly. We fail a hundred times a day. But every time we come back and thank God for his grace and his forgiveness. And that he's changing us. That he's making us more like Jesus, the perfect man, than like who we used to be. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you thought you were a good person when you came in today. And suddenly, through the lens of just commandment one, we've not even unpacked the other nine, you suddenly realize that God's standards maybe were a little bit different to the standards that you thought he had. That being a decent person wasn't enough. And that God never asked for you to just be a decent person. That before anything else, he said, I want you to love me with all your heart. You shall have no other gods before me. And friend, you've got to figure out what you're going to do with that knowledge now that you have it. You've got to figure out how you're going to respond to God now that you know that his standards are different to yours. There's an invitation there that you can, like everyone else in this room who knows Jesus, you can recognize you're a sinner and come to him for forgiveness. That's the invitation. But it also means that you now walk with responsibility before God. You can't claim ignorance anymore. And I encourage you, I encourage you to find out what it is he wants from your life and respond to him.